Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Murder in Modesto, Lacey and Connor Peterson Go Missing. This is part three of a six-part series that will take a deep dive into the murders of Lacey Peterson and her unborn child, Connor Peterson, and the first-degree murder trial of Scott Peterson. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. everybody for coming out here tonight. Lacey would be so happy to see she had so many friends and supporters. And just keep looking for Lacey. Please don't give up. Thanks to all of you. We've taken a lot of strength from all of you. Thank you very much. That was Ron Gransky, Lacey's stepdad, and Dennis wrote to Lacey's father. I'd also like to invite Lacey's aunt, uh, cousin, Cassandra Kemple, to come and say a few words. Hi, and I just want to thank everybody for coming out here tonight. It really means a lot to the family. I'd like to read a little script from the Bible. It's called light it, Let It Shine. We are holding a light. We are to let it shine. Though it may seem but a twinkling candle in a world of blackness, but it is our business to let it shine. Light dispels darkness, and it attracts people in darkness to it. We are blowing a triumph. In the din and noise of battle that sound our little triumph may seem to be lost, but we must keep sounding the alarm so those who are in spiritual danger. We are kindling a fire in this cold world full of hatred and selfishness. Our little blaze may seem to be unveiling, but we must keep the fire burning. A light, a triumph, a fire, they seem so little amidst the darkness and violence of the world. But with God, all things are possible, and he will bless our efforts and bring the good news of Lacey back to us. Thank you. In 2002, Modesto, California was a town struggling with the national recession that began in 2001. Less than 100 miles south of San Francisco, Modesto, a small agricultural city set in the valley between Stockton, California to the north, and Fresno to the south. Unemployment was growing as the burst of the Silicon Valley tech bubble impacted the community negatively. Modesto was dealing with population growth and with that, a growing homelessness problem that was bleeding over from the Bay Area. Modesto has long been known as the car theft capital of the world and had its fair share of crime plaguing the residents due to growing cost of living and the income disparity between the wealthy and the poor. The community was not prepared for what was coming. Scott and Lacey Peterson landed somewhere in the middle financially. Scott had accepted a job with Tradecore USA after college selling fertilizer in a regional location that was predominantly focused on agriculture, making $60,000 a year. Lacey worked as a substitute teacher, making less than $30,000 a year. She was, however, focused on starting a family, and Connor would be their first child. Scott should have been a little more excited, but Lacey found him not interested in filling her belly as Connor began kicking and moving in anticipation of his upcoming birth date. As the year was ending and Modesto was preparing for the 2002 Christmas holidays, Scott was hiding secrets. He had recently begun seeing a masseuse named Amber Fry, a single mother who lived about 100 miles south in Fresno, California. 
Lacey would have been experiencing a work break based on how far along she was with her pregnancy, but also because students were out for Christmas break. On December 23rd, Scott needed a haircut, and Lacey went with him to Salon Salon, a hair salon where Lacey's sister, Amy Rocha, worked as a hairstylist, arriving there just before 6 p.m. The two women would converse and spend time together while Scott got his hair cut. Amy would teach Lacey how to curl her hair a particular way. The discussion about Papa's gift, referencing a fruit basket that Amy had ordered for her father or stepfather, came up and Scott volunteered to pick it up the next day, since he had scheduled tea time at the country club and had plans to play golf in the morning, and the vendor's location was close to the country club where he golfed. Amy would later tell police that Lacey was wearing tan maternity pants with a drawstring and a black shirt with flowers. This outfit would be found in the Peterson home. Amy would later tell police that her sister appeared exhausted from the pregnancy. At approximately 8.30 p.m., Lacey called her mother, Sharon Ruth Rocha. They had discussed on several occasions Lacey and Scott coming over on Christmas Eve for dinner, and Lacey was calling to confirm that they would be there. Sharon had clicked over from the other line and told Lacey to arrive around 6 p.m., keeping the call short, as to not keep the other caller waiting. Lacey and her mother were close, and one of the main reasons why Lacey had returned to Modesto after graduating college. Sharon would later describe Lacey to detectives as sounding very tired during that last conversation. Although Lacey loved cooking, on the night of December 23rd, the couple opted for pizza. Maybe it was because Lacey was feeling tired. According to Scott, they watched The Rookie on television and went to sleep before 11 p.m. So they've got a mortgage, they've got two car payments, and now they have an addition to their family as well. Right. Scott goes and he gets his hair cut at Salon Salon. And Amy spends time with her sister for the very last time. And this was a regular occurrence. Apparently, he would go get his hair cut there all the time from her sister. Right. And what's really telling in this situation with them is that Scott's 100% planning on going golfing the next day. Right. He's got tea time scheduled. He's planning on picking up some gifts. He's actually volunteered to do it. Right. I'll pick it up for you. And so... What happens over the next 24 hours, something happens that causes him not to follow through with the original plan. I agree. A murder. Let's talk about the outfit. So Lacey's outfit is found in the house. Yes. I know that there's a point where Amy Rocha, because she's the one that talks about seeing what Lacey was wearing, you know, the day prior, she was brought to the house by law enforcement to go into the house and to identify the outfit. And so she identifies the shirt, which becomes evidence. And she also identifies the pants, which become evidence as well. So that whole outfit was there in the house. And I want to say that the entire outfit was in the laundry hamper. There's the discussion about Christmas Eve dinner and Lacey calls her mom and says, you know, hey, we're coming over for dinner. And I would assume that they both mutually had a plan that 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 next day, which is Christmas Eve, which would be normal, that you would go spend time with family. And so he knew that they were going to be going to her home at 6 p.m. Christmas Eve in the Peterson household began like any other typical day, according to Scott. Scott would later tell the police that Lacey woke up early around 7 a.m. and had a bowl of cinnamon puffs from Trader Joe's. Lacey had suffered from morning sickness for most of her pregnancy, and even this late in the game, she would become nauseated if she skipped breakfast. Scott would remain in bed until around 8 a.m. Someone in the Peterson household would be online between 8.40 a.m. and 8.45 a.m. searching for a red scarf from Gap and a sunflower umbrella stand. The police would attribute this search to Lacey due to the feminine nature of the products although both Scott and Lacey had access to the computer. Susan Medina, who lived immediately across the street from the Peterson residence, saw Scott at about 8.55 a.m. loading something wrapped in a blue tarp in the back of his truck. Five minutes after this observation, Scott would tell police that he was watching Martha Stewart with Lacey, which was her favorite show. When asked what the show was about, he stated that it was talking about meringue cookies. 
This would be a unique timestamp as the meringue cookies would not be discussed on the show until 9.48 a.m., making this a unique timestamp and putting Scott in the home at that time. Scott had scheduled tea time at the local country club that he belonged to. He had told multiple people that he would be going golfing. He'd even offered to pick up Amy's holiday fruit basket for Papa's gift since it was close to the country club. However, at the last minute, Scott changed his plans of golfing and he made the decision to go fishing instead. He would cite the weather as the reason for the change, although the weather had been constant throughout the week and remained below 50 degrees into Christmas Day. This would be odd as Scott wasn't a fisher. His father-in-law, who was a fisher, had invited Scott to go fishing several times, but Scott had declined those opportunities. Ironically, Scott had recently purchased a used freshwater boat on December 9th for $1,400. Between the 9th and present day December 24th, Scott had purchased fishing rods, lures, and other fishing accessories. He'd also fabricated his own anchor from concrete. Later, when police asked about the residual concrete, after finding one anchor, but evidence of multiple anchors being fabricated, Scott would claim that he used the residual concrete on his driveway. Scott stored the boat at his warehouse. Later, when Susan asked him about the boat, Scott would tell her that he purchased the boat as a surprise gift for Ron Gransky, Lacey's stepfather. Susan found this to be a strange thing. Scott's story about when he left home would change several times as he adjusted his time frame to fit the confirmed timestamps of the Martha Stewart show and a cell phone call he made at 10.08 a.m., which pinged close to the Peterson home. With both of those confirmable timestamps, Scott could not have left the house at 9 a.m. like he initially claimed. Additionally, a neighbor would later claim to have spoken to Scott around 9.20 to 9.40 a.m. while Scott was loading pool umbrellas into the back of his truck. Scott would have left after the 10.08 a.m. call. At 10.18 a.m., Karen Servas, a neighbor, would state that she saw the Peterson dog, Mackenzie, near the home with his leash on and placed Mackenzie in the Peterson's backyard, leaving the leash on the dog. If Scott's version of events is to be believed, these timestamps would give Lacey only a 20-minute window if she left home immediately after Scott left to disappear. The park where she walked the dog was a mile away. It would take a healthy, athletic walker at least 15 to 20 minutes to walk to the park, if walking a dog. For Lacey, given her condition, it would most likely have taken about 25 to 30 minutes. This would mean that she could not have made it to the park, and if taken off the street in broad daylight, would have had to be taken within 10 to 15 minutes from the time that Scott left home at 10.08 a.m. There would later be multiple people who would claim to see a pregnant lady walking a golden retriever. Most would assume that it had to have been Lacey, but police would later identify three different pregnant women who lived along the route that were both similarly pregnant and also had a golden retriever. Many of the timelines would not align with the known and provable timestamps that created the window of opportunity to see Lacey. Scott would head to his warehouse, which was located about three miles away from his home, getting there around 10.30 a.m. Computer forensics would later timestamp his presence at the warehouse between 10.30 and 10.54 a.m. During this time, Scott would search assembly instructions for a piece of woodworking equipment he recently purchased. He would also send a holiday email to his boss. Scott left the warehouse shortly before 11 a.m. and headed to the Berkeley Marina with his new boat in tow. Let's decompress that, all right? So let's start off with Christmas Eve. First of all, I'm going to say this. The night before, Lacey Peterson was extremely tired, according to Amy Rocha. I cannot imagine being pregnant, coming home, changing, and supposedly she changed from that outfit that she was in. She put on, I guess, some pajamas or whatever that probably fit her better. And supposedly they got pizza and they watched this movie. And I want to say there was another movie as well that they at least started. Maybe that they didn't finish before going to sleep. I can't imagine that she made it through a movie. She was exhausted. Yeah. And then the next morning he talks about how, you know, she wakes up earlier than him and that they have cereal together at some point when he gets up. He seems to know a lot of details in the morning. To me, that seem, I don't know, seem a little off because I think about even for us when we wake up in the morning, like 
I don't always know exactly what you had to eat for breakfast and when and what time. And especially if I woke up after you, I would have to come and look and see what you ate. That kind of seems off to me too. And then the computer. So the computer has been brought up a lot as far as saying, oh, she was alive on the 24th. She must have been alive. An internet search doesn't say that because he has access, she has access, and anybody else who could have been in the home had access. Right. So you can't prove that it was her or that it was him. It's inconsequential. Right. To tell the truth, it really doesn't tell you anything at all. And think about it. Think about if you're trying to get away with the crime and you're trying to create an alibi or you're trying to create a, a narrative. He could have been buying a gift for Amber Fry. <laughs> He could have had scarf. Could have, I was 100%. thinking. I was sitting here thinking to myself too. Why would an eight-month pregnant woman want a red scarf? And who searches for umbrella stands for the summer, Christmas Eve yeah. when it's cold? I don't know who does that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. It is odd, but again, I think the main point of that is that it doesn't mean anything, right? Now, Susan Medina, who lives across the street, says she sees him loading the blue tarp with something in it into the back of his truck. And that time is very specific, 8.55 a.m. in the morning. Right. But no one sees Lacey. Right. And I do want to point out that Susan Medina is the owner of the home who you later hear about having been broken into when she was out of town. Right. And so they were preparing to leave when they saw Scott. So, you know, the 24th was the day that they left the house. Right. And so they talk about Martha Stewart, and I think that's really important. I think the Martha Stewart show is really important because he makes reference to the meringue cookies. And this is really important because we know that that shows up at 948. That, that reference shows up at 948. So that gives us a definite time that he would have had to see that in order to know it. There's no other way he would have known. And even if he wasn't watching it, even if he was in the house doing something. Right. Like. And happened to hear Wrapping it a body in a blue tarp. I don't know. <laughs> He probably wasn't doing that. But if he was happened to be in the house moving around and he just happened to look at the TV at the time when it's talking about marine cookies and that just kind of stuck in his head, I think that really puts him in the house. And that means that he wasn't gone at nine o'clock like he originally said. He left at nine. Right. Um, we have multiple people saying that they saw him after nine o'clock to include a neighbor who said he said hi to him and they had a conversation between 920 and 940. Right. So now the next hard timestamp is the 10.08 timestamp. That's the cell phone ping that's very close to the house, meaning that he still would have been close to the home around that time, right. which means Lacey still had not left at that point. For him to be at the home at that time, and then we know that the neighbor finds the dog at 10.18, that's 10 minutes. And there is a possibility, depending on, on them pinging the phone, and I don't know about how the pinging of the cell phone has changed from 2002 to now, but there's a certain circumference that's picked up when they ping a cell phone. So does that mean that he was in the house or at the house? Not necessarily, but he had to be pretty close. Right. So, so it's very likely he could have just been leaving the house. Right. Or he could have been driving to work at the time. And what we do know is that in order for Lacey to leave the house, it would have had to be after he left. It would have had to be after 10 o'clock. So there's still like a 15 to 20 minute window from the time that he left that we know he was still in the neighborhood that she would have left the house according to his account of things. Right. Which tells me that between 10.08 and 10.18, that, that 10 minute time span of his phone call and when McKenzie's found with the leash. Yeah. Now, I want all of you pet owners to think about something for a moment. If you were taking your dog for a walk and you let go of the leash and you disappeared, would your dog just nonchalantly walk home, not bark, not get upset, not nothing? I don't buy it. And especially not within a 10 minute, 20 minute time span. And, and it's a golden retriever. <laughs> And not just that, but you're telling me that between 10.08 and 10.18, Lacey started a walk and disappeared in 10 minutes, pregnant, yeah. eight months pregnant? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I don't think so because of a couple things. Look at how many people see Scott that morning. Right. Look at how many people come out and go, I, I talked to him. I saw him. He was putting something in his car. I saw the dog. They see, they see the dog. 
Then other people go, hey, we saw some lady walking down the street, but no one saw Lacey being kidnapped in broad daylight. I don't think he counted on McKenzie coming right back. Home. Maybe not. <laughs> that really narrowed down his window of time. Lacey could not have walked to the park in the amount of time that McKenzie would have been back at the house. There's just no way. Right. And I think that there's a few things to mention there with that as well, is that one is... And I know people are very different because when I was in the military pregnant and doing physical training in the military, I did pregnancy PT and there was a girl, I kid you not, who was probably eight months pregnant who would run and I couldn't do it. I felt like I was having a heart attack. It just wasn't happening. But from the way that Lacey's family has described her being tired and then she had a yoga instructor around this same time frame within a week who had said that Lacey could hardly walk. And that Lacey typically, all the neighbors talked about how Lacey didn't walk the dog by herself. Scott was always with her. And part of the reasoning was because of controlling the dog, especially while she was pregnant. So she's tired. Her yoga instructor saying that she can hardly walk. And she did mention that even though she said that, she said that Lacey had been talking to her about, I need to get out and walk because I'm gaining weight. So could she have attempted to? Maybe. But the fact that everybody's talking about how tired she is, and then the fact that you've got somebody saying the girl could hardly walk. Right. How did she disappear into thin air in 10 minutes? In 10 minutes. Multiple people will later claim to see a pregnant lady walking a golden retriever. And I think it's really important to understand how fallible witnesses can be. And here's a perfect example. The lady who witnesses the burglary happening immediately assumes it was on the day that Lacey went missing. Right. She assumed that that burglary was happening on the 24th. As we all know, that burglary happened on the 26th. Right. In her memory, she remembered it two days prior to it happening. It's very important to understand that people don't know Lacey. The people that are seeing a pregnant lady walking with a dog don't know her. So it's really hard to say that was Lacey Peterson versus it was one of the three pregnant women that live in that area that also have a golden retriever that walk their dog. There's too many other variables for you to definitively say that who you saw was Lacey Peterson. Plus, the timeline is still only 10 to 15 minute window. Right. Which means that she would have only gotten so far and people had saw her like more than a mile away. Right. There's no way she could have gotten that far. That's so. true. And what they did was people who who try to create a story where there's a possibility that Lacey had walked to this particular route that would have been the route she would have taken to the park. They say that people were seeing her all throughout this route. There's no way that she made it all throughout that route where these people supposedly all saw her. That just couldn't have taken place. Based on the timeline, based on when we know he was there, based on when we know Mackenzie came home, it just doesn't make sense. And the fact that his own attorney, who is a very famous attorney who has represented a lot of people and won a lot of cases, chose not to call in any of those witnesses. Why? Because the statements were inconsistent with one another. And that's very important. Because if your own attorney doesn't think that it's a good idea to have them in there. It's probably not a good idea to have them in there. And it's probably not helpful for your case. Right. So Scott headed over to the warehouse. The warehouse where he works is three miles away. So he gets there pretty quickly within 15 minutes. When he comes home, we realize that, you know, he also, it takes him about 15 minutes from the time that he gets to the warehouse to the time that he gets back home. It's a very short drive, but he does get there at around 1030 which would be in alignment with him leaving around 10.05, 10, you know, 10.08, around that time frame and getting to the warehouse by 10.30. So it's about 15 minutes. So he does stay at the warehouse from 10.30 to 10.54. He connects his boat and then he heads out to go fishing. And there is some timestamps for the utilization of the computer there as right. well. And of course, assuming that he was the only one that was at the warehouse, we assume that that's him. And one of the reasons that they say it had to have been him is because there was a login into his email. And so they've determined that that had to have been Scott Peterson.
Scott will arrive at the Berkeley Marina at 12.54 p.m. This would be time-stamped with a verifiable ticket. He would arrive late for fishing standards as most fishermen begin fishing earlier in the morning. This is about the time that they'd be stopping. Scott would take time to place the freshwater boat into the saltwater marina, and then he claimed to go out a mile to where he planned on fishing. He would later tell police that he didn't have any maps or GPS and just steered randomly to the location. During the investigation, however, computer forensics will identify hours of research into the marina tides, water flow, and currents. He would tell the police that he fished for 90 minutes, but the timestamp of his first call to Lacey at 2.15 p.m. from the Berkeley Marina, letting her know that he was done fishing and returning home, would shorten his window to less than an hour on the water. In analyzing the entire process, it took Scott about 5 to 10 minutes to launch and recover the boat and took another 10 to 15 minutes to guide the boat a mile out and a mile back from the fishing location. This would have given Scott less than 30 to 45 minutes of actual fishing time. Considering that the drive out was an hour and 40 minutes and the return trip was 2 hours and 30 minutes long, then Scott's alibi is that on Christmas Eve, Scott decided last minute to forgo his tea time and spend six hours and 30 minutes of effort from start to finish to fish for half an hour. His voicemail to Lacey was to let her know that he would not be able to pick up the fruit basket for Papa as he would not be getting back in time. Scott will call Lacey at 2.15 p.m. when he left the marina and again at 3.52 p.m when he was about 30 minutes away from the home with no answer. At no time is he worried about his pregnant wife not answering his call. He ignores calls from Lacey's sister throughout the day, who was calling to confirm that he would be picking up Papa's Christmas gift. At 4.30 p.m., Scott is back at the warehouse, dropping off the boat, and he is home at about 4.45 p.m. He will later tell detectives that when he arrived home, nothing looked out of sorts, with the exception that Lacey's car was in the driveway and the dog was in the backyard with the leash on. Instead of looking for his wife, Scott immediately washed his clothes, grabbed two slices of leftover pizza, although he was an hour from Christmas Eve dinner, and jumped in the shower. After getting dressed, he called Sharon at 5.17 p.m. and asked if Lacey was there. She was not. He explained the presence of the dog with the dog leash and said that Lacey was missing. His choice of words would haunt Sharon later. They would all call friends and family of Lacey, to see if anyone else had seen or heard from her. And at 5.47 p.m., Ron, Lacey's stepfather, dialed 911. How can I help you? Yes, uh, my son-in-law called. He was playing golf okay. this morning, mm-hmm. 9.30. My daughter's been missing since this morning. She's eight months pregnant. She took her dog for a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. The dog came home with just the leaf shot. And the dog came back without your daughter? The most telling thing to me is really his lack of communication with Lacey. And the reason why is because he doesn't talk to her all day long. And I don't know if this is common, but when he does leave her a voicemail, it's very loving. It's very, oh, I miss you, baby. I'm coming to see you. I'm on my way home, this, that, whatever, whatever. But he hasn't talked to her all day long. It comes off as odd because she's pregnant and she's in a very very vulnerable state and she left to go walk the dog and you haven't heard from her since. Right. And I know that that the detectives would talk about the message that he left Lacey saying that the verbiage was weird based on the amount of time that they had been together and how you would talk to your significant other. They said it seemed a little bit too like acted out. Right. Like you just started dating, not like right. you've been together for years, you know, like it just seemed Almost too, as if too re- amped up. You're recording it for an audience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess if it was me and I was leaving the marina, I'd be like, hey, babe, just leaving the marina. I called you. Not sure why you're not answering your phone. <laughs> you know, I would say something like that. Like, hey, I called you a couple times. I don't know why you're not picking up. Please call me when you get this. I sent you a couple text messages. I'd be annoyed. 
That would be annoying too. Because I, I would be annoyed because I, I would be concerned. I'd be sitting off, find my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have been concerned. And after the second time of calling, and I would have called Sharon. Sharon, can you please? Or I would have called Amy. Amy, can you please? And he's not picking up Amy's calls. Right. And the strange thing about that is that there's a number of different calls out and in during the time frames where Amy's calling him where he's right. not picking up. So he is purposefully not answering Amy's call. Right, right. That's that's, and that's odd. It is odd. And Amy was calling him because she had gotten a call from the place saying, hey, like, did you forget to pick up your right. fruit basket? Yeah, because it's Christmas Eve and we're <laughs> yeah. going to close early. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the other piece of it that's very odd is that when he gets home, I don't understand why he washes his clothes. To me, that really stands out as being odd because Lacey's clothes from the day prior is in the hamper. He didn't wash that. He only washed what he was wearing. So to me, that's a little bit odd. I don't understand why you would not take off your clothes and just throw it in the hamper. He calls Sharon and he tells Sharon that Lacey's missing. And those words really stick with Sharon later when she recounts that story and says, it really stuck me like, why did you say missing? That really bothered her a lot. It's such weird verbiage to use when you're talking about your spouse, who's a grown adult, who it almost, and I said this before, you know, like, like instead of just saying like, hey, I don't know where she is, that verbiage is just strange. Yeah. And then the other piece of that is that when he starts to call around people to see where, you know, where she might be, because he calls some of the friends, he even goes across the street and talks to one of the neighbors who later recounts that. She says that he came over and said he had just got back from golfing and Lacey was not there and wanted to know if they had seen Lacey. And so under oath, she confirms, yes, I definitely recall him saying, I just got back from golfing. Ron also says on the 911 call, my son-in-law just got back from golfing and his wife is missing. And so I think it's really telling that the narrative there is he was golfing. And at some point, he realizes that he needs to be truthful. His alibi can't be that he went golfing because they're going to find out that he was not there, that he was somewhere else. Or because he originally was going to go golfing, those were slips. The Modesto police arrive at the East Loma Park at 6 p.m. They would find Scott there with the remainder of Lacey's family who would be scouring the park looking for evidence of Lacey. Thoughts of her fragile health and the potential that she could have fallen or been injured and was there waiting to be rescued kept hope thriving. By midnight, the fear that Lacey was not there became real. The police turned to the places she could most likely be, the Peterson home and the warehouse where Scott worked. Scott would endure an hour of intensive questioning. The detectives would bring Scott into the police station to get the questioning recorded on video. They were eager to rule Scott out as a potential person of interest so they could focus on other potential suspects, but Scott's demeanor was unsettling to the detectives. He didn't ask the right questions. He didn't seem as concerned as he should have considering his wife was pregnant and missing. He originally agreed to take a polygraph and then changed his mind. Later, Multiple witnesses would say that Scott told them that he had returned from golfing to find Lacey missing and not fishing. This would stand out with his neighbor, who specifically recalls him saying he was golfing that day, and Ron's statement on the 911 call telling the police that his son-in-law had returned from golfing to find his wife missing. His timeline also comes under fire, and he describes his wife as having a burst of energy that morning, which is in contrast with how everyone else experienced her the day prior. Scott also does not alert his family to Lacey's disappearance immediately. These are all inconclusive signs, but they leave the police feeling unsettled. At 10.30 a.m., the Modesto Bee, the city of Modesto Press, releases a statement, and the press whirlwind takes a life of its own. The day after Christmas, December 26, while most people are finishing off Christmas dinner leftovers, the Modesto police were securing a search warrant for the Peterson home. Local volunteers opened a volunteer center and a reward for $100,000 was posted for any info leading to Lacey's whereabouts. We'd like to thank all of you for being here and helping us trying to find our daughter. And we'd just like to send a message out there that whoever has her, please, please, please let her go. Bring her back We to love us. her so much. We want her, we want her back. 
please get Lotus Hammer back. We want her and our grandson home safely and immediately. So please bring her back to us. She and Scott are just so much in love. They just, they're just, I think everybody envies their relationship. They're just perfect together. They have a wonderful life. They're looking forward to having their baby. They've waited a long time. They've tried for a long time to have a baby and she finally became pregnant. And I mean, this is just the center of her world to have her baby and be with her husband. The same day, Susan Medina's home would be burglarized by Donald Glenn Pierce and Stephen Wayne Todd. This would later be presented as a potential alternate theory to Lacey's disappearance, as Scott's attorney would present the notion that Lacey might have interrupted a burglary and they took actions to keep her quiet. Diane Jackson would state that she witnessed the crime herself, but would later confuse the days, stating that the burglary occurred on Christmas Eve. On December 30th, Scott would give the Modesto detectives motive when Amber Fry recognizes the missing woman in Modesto as Scott's wife. Scott's dark secret, an affair with the young masseuse from Fresno, will eventually alienate Scott from his support of family and friends, and detectives would begin focusing solely on Scott as the main suspect. Amber would collude with detectives to attempt to garner a confession from Scott after Amber recalls Scott telling her that his wife was gone on December 9th two weeks prior to her disappearance, and coincidentally, the same day that he purchased the boat. What are you talking about? She was dead. Um, I'll, just, I'll just tell you. Okay. Uh, you haven't been watching the news, obviously. No. Uh, I have not been traveling in about two weeks. My, I've, I've lied to you when I've been traveling. The girl I got married to, her name is Lacey. Mm-hmm. She disappeared just before Christmas. Mm-hmm. For the past two weeks, I've been in Modesto with her family and mine, searching for her. Okay. She just disappeared, and no one knows. Okay, now... Where she's been. Scott? And I, I, I can't tell you more because I, I need you to be protected from the media and I honor. Okay. okay, they are amazing. Scott, are, yeah. are you listening? I am. You came to me earlier in December and told me that you had lost your wife. What was that about? She's The detectives would turn their search to the Berkeley Marina, the location where Scott had spent the day fishing on Christmas Eve. On New Year's Eve, Scott would be at a vigil for Lacey, but he would call Amber Fry from the vigil, pretending to be in Paris at the Eiffel Tower. Police would record the conversation with Amber playing the unsuspecting girlfriend. Scott would be observed and photographed expressing inappropriate emotions at the vigil, smiling and laughing. He would also go out of his way to avoid cameras in the press.
The calls that he had with Amber Fry were so personal and so calculated and so so natural for him that it really destroyed his credibility. Which even if you're having an affair and you're completely innocent, it would be really hard to have a conversation like that with somebody when your spouse is missing. Yeah. Even if you're no longer in love with them. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. So that's odd behavior. Yeah. It's very, very odd. Scott goes through this interrogation and they're smart because they get it on camera. His demeanor is very unsettling. And we already know he, he agrees not to take the polygraph. One thing I do want to bring up is something that I think is real key when we talk about the investigation is the tarp because that becomes evidence that's listed as evidence. It's also brought up in the trial and tagged. So I think it's important to bring up the tarp. And so he was using the tarp supposedly that morning to wrap up and deliver the umbrellas to the warehouse for storage because it's wintertime, right? And guess what? They were still in his truck that night when he was questioned by the police, which is another thing that came off as being odd. If you loaded him up to take him to the warehouse and you were at the warehouse twice, why are they still in your truck? Right. So that was another strange thing for investigators. He was searching for a boat on the 8th. He purchased a boat on the 9th. On the 9th, he talks to Amber Fry and he's telling Amber Fry that this is going to be the first holidays without his spouse. Right. On the ninth, when you went and got the boat, right? A non fisherman, <laughs> yeah. So you know all of those things. The way that they aligned just aligned in such a strange way. Going out to you know to the marina when it's freaking cold, and it's right. even colder when you're out on the water or even by the water. Yeah. So if it was too cold to golf, it was sure as heck too cold to go fish. <laughs> yeah. If he wouldn't have gone fishing. And he would have went golfing. And Lacey's body would have turned up at the Berkeley Marina. And they never would have put him at the Berkeley Marina. He would have the perfect alibi. Right. He would have the perfect alibi. At no time was he ever at the Berkeley Marina. He could not have been the guy. But the coincidence of him going fishing at the Berkeley Marina and the bodies turning up at the Berkeley Marina, it's just is too Everything coincidental. Everything together. Yeah. And in order for somebody to frame you... Man, they'd have to know your entire alibi. Yeah. The timing and everything. They would have to know it all. And even though there was portions that were released to the media, a timeline wasn't released. Not a very specific timeline. So I know that they asked if anybody had seen the truck and seen the boat during the day. Like, they didn't give any specifics. So, you know, in order for somebody to have framed him, they really would have, they would have had to have had some intimate knowledge. Yeah. In a world where Scott Peterson was framed, somebody kidnapped Lacey, murdered her, and then held onto the body until the alibi came out, until they shared the alibi, which I, I'm going to assume was a, at least a couple days. And then they would have to take the body and they'd have to move it to the Berkeley Marina and then put the body in the Berkeley Marina and pretend like it's Scott. But, but even if that was the case, right, you would need more than just the body in the marina. You would need motive. With no motive, the body in the marina wouldn't have never worked. In order for, for him to be set up, he would have had to have a motive. It wouldn't have been a setup. It just would have been a coincidence that the body turned up in the marina. Because without the motive, there's no reason. If their relationship was viewed as perfect, and everybody thought they were this perfect couple, and nothing was wrong in their relationship, because nobody finds out about Amber Fry until January. So anybody who would have tried to frame him would have had to understand that he had a motive. As the world rang in the new year of 2003, the police were searching the Berkeley Marina for evidence of Lacey and Connor. A little over two weeks into the new year, news of Scott's infidelity leaked to the Inquirer. And Modesto detectives head off the leak by bringing Amber Fry into the spotlight on January 24th, 2003, with the press conference that shocked the world. This immediately results in Scott losing any support from Lacey's family, who up to this point 
had stood in support of Scott's innocence. Scott? Yeah. Where are you? Um, I just loaded up all the stuff for the L.A. Command Center. Oh. Just left the Volunteer Center. I gave a couple interviews to the press and then... Well, since you've managed to lose all of my confidence in you, what I want to know is where's my daughter? I wish I knew mom. I wish I knew where she yeah, is. Yeah, you do know. You do know where she is and I want you to tell me, where is Lacey and her baby? Where did you put them? Where is my wife and our child? I don't know. You killed my daughter, didn't you? No, I didn't, mom. Yes, you did, Scott. And I want to know. Just let me bring my daughter home, okay? That's all I want. I don't want anything else from you. I want you to tell me where my daughter is. I want to be able to bury my daughter. Now would you tell me where she is? Don't know where she is. I want my wife- Stop lying. I'm tired of your lies. You have looked me in the eye for weeks and been lying to me. You've looked me in the eye for years and been lying to me and to Lacey. Now where is she? If I wish I knew. You don't know. Stop lying. For once in your life, take some responsibility and tell the goddamn truth. Where is my daughter? I want her home, mom. Shut up. Don't tell me such stupid things. You tell me where she is. Where'd you put her? Scott, tell me where she is. I'm sorry. And you can run away. You can go do whatever the fuck you want. But you tell me where my daughter is. I'm sorry. I have every right to know where you put Lacey. We all have a right to know where Lacey- Quit lying to me. Don't bullshit me. You tell me where she is. We all want her home. Shut up. You are such a fucking liar. You make me sick, Scott. Where is Lacey? Tell me where Lacey is. I want to be able to bury my daughter. Now tell me what you did with her. I want her and our child Oh, shut up. You're disgusting. Do you know there's not a person in this town who wants to see your face? Now you tell me where she is and then you can get the hell out of here. Tell me where she is. I want my daughter, Scott. That's all I want from you. I don't care what happens to you. Mom, we all want her back. Oh, Dad, you're disgusting. Do you have anything to say to him? If you've got anything left in you, Scott, you better tell us where she is. I wish I knew Ron. We all want her back. No, the police are going to be seeing you before long, Scott, and your world is crumbling. My world is done without Lacey and my child. We all want her back, and I'm sorry that you guys feel I had something to do with it. But the only important thing is getting her back. Scott, I don't know how you can just, I don't know how you can just keep saying. We've seen pictures, we've seen other things, so, you're in trouble. We want her back. We all want her back, there's no question to that. We need to find her and Connor. I've had enough of this, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You tell us where Lacey is. As all eyes turned to Scott, Scott responded by trying to use the media to tell his side of the story. This backfires horribly when Diane Sawyer questions Scott about his infidelity, and Scott makes the mistake of speaking of Lacey in past tense. I think everybody sitting at home wants the answer to the same question. Did you murder your wife? No, no, I did not. And I had absolutely nothing to do with her disappearance. And, and use the word murder, and yeah, I mean, that is a, a possibility. Um, it's not one we're ready to accept, and it creeps in my mind late at night and early in the morning. And during the day, all we can think about is the right resolution is to find her well. But as you know, increasingly, in the public, suspicion has turned on you. Yes, definitely. Did you ever hit her? Did you ever injure her? No, no. My God, no. Um, violence towards women is unapproachable. It is the most disgusting act to me. Um, and I know that uh, suspicion has turned to me. And it's, um, it's turned to me, one, because I'm her husband. And that's a natural thing. And I've heard all the statistics on all the news shows about that being, you know, someone that, uh, a husband, ex-husband, a boyfriend, that is statistically one who would be responsible for her disappearance. And, um, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. <laughs> Did you ever hit her? Did you no, ever injure her? No, no, never. Um, I, was, I was answered your question because of the suspicion that it's been turned to me. And it turned to me because of the inappropriate romantic um, that I had with Amber Friday. His responses and body language are analyzed and dissected. Lacey's due date and Connor's birth date, February 10th, come and go with no signs of either, 
and a month later, on March 5th, the case is reclassified from a missing persons case to a homicide case. On April 13th, a fetus is discovered in the San Francisco Bay, a few miles away from the Berkeley Marina. Earlier this week, East Bay Park authorities uh, discovered two bodies. There is no question in our minds that the identified female is Lacey Peterson. The unidentified fetus is the biological child of Lacey and Scott Peterson. Within the week, the fetus and torso are positively identified through DNA as both Lacey and Connor. Scott is immediately apprehended near La Jolla in San Diego as detectives view him as a flight risk. First, we find his motive, which now he's got this infidelity, this affair that he's having. And very shortly after the affair, out comes the bodies, which is the second nail in the coffin. Those are the two nails that that bury him and give the state of California enough to move forward with the arrest. I think that Amber Fry really put Scott in a light where it gave motive for him to be the prime suspect, for sure. And then by finding the bodies, and it wasn't just about finding the bodies. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's harder to prosecute a case without a body. So given the opportunity, typically prosecutors like to wait to try to do a prosecution until a body is found, just because there's some doubt if you can't find a body. So... The combination of Amber Fry coming forward along with the recorded tapes, which is extremely intelligent of the police and the detectives to have set that up and admirable of her to have gone through that. Because I know at the point she realized this guy could be really dangerous. He's obviously lying to me. Right. Like big time. For her to have agreed to do that, I know that that had to be, and she had a young child, like a two-year-old. Yeah. That had to be emotionally challenging for her. Yeah, it was tough. So I really have to, you know, yeah, just very admirable thing of her Yeah, to do that. I think the other mistake that he did was he went on into the media unprepared and he had a conversation with Diane Sawyer because I feel like that really exposed him to the world and everybody looked at his body language. They looked at his movements. They looked at his, his stuttering and his mumbling and his like, it made him look really bad. And Diane Sawyer is not the person to go interview with yeah. if you're guilty. Yeah. 100%. Because she is known for having a just the amount of experience she has and just the way that she talks to people. Her emotional intelligence is very high. Yeah. And so she's able to get a lot of out of people. Yeah. And the fact that he stumbled as much as he did is no surprise. Yeah. At the time of his arrest on April 18th, Scott was driving Mercedes Benz. He had changed his appearance, dyeing his hair blonde and sporting a mustache and a goatee. He had more than $14,000 wrapped in $100 bills in cash. He had his brother's identification. He had four cell phones, a gun, a dagger, two folding knives, map quest directions to Amber Fry's place of employment in Fresno, camping gear, duct tape, a rope, a shovel, 24 sleeping pills, and 12 Viagra tablets at the time of his arrest. Looked like he was getting ready for a party. <laughs> All signs pointed to Scott preparing to run into Mexico. Scott is arraigned three days later on April 21st in Stanislaus County Superior Court in Modesto, and he pleads not guilty to two counts of capital murder. He gets appointed a public defender initially, but by May 2nd, celebrity attorney Mark Garagos is hired by the Peterson family to represent Scott. His fee? $1 million. Lacey and Connor are finally laid to rest in a memorial service on May 4th, five months after Lacey and Connor's disappearance. Of which the Petersons didn't attend. I didn't know the Petersons didn't attend. Nope. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I know that his mom said it was out of respect, and if I were Lacey's family, I wouldn't want any of his family there, truthfully. If I felt at that point in time that he had anything to do with it, I wouldn't want them there, especially if they were supporting him. Yeah, I understand that. 
In terms of Scott in La Jolla in San Diego, do you believe he's going to run? One hundred percent. I have no doubt. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. I don't know why he hadn't run yet, and I think part of it was he was waiting to see if what they found in the bay was Lacey. And I think that was a determining factor because if it wasn't Lacey, it'd be dumb for him to run. It would have made him look guilty if it was not her body. They'd have been like, well, why did he run to Mexico? So I think he was waiting for the, it to come out of the news. But the police are smarter than that. They got the information first, moved in and arrested him before they put it out into the right. media. He was behind the eight ball. He was not in front of the news. He was behind it. I think that's what stopped him from actually trying to escape. There's no reason why he would have that much in cash and then all those things, like all the camping gear. And it looked like he wanted to kill Amber Fry. Yeah. And not just that, but I think the reason for him getting the car is because his cars had GPS trackers. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So the only way for him not to be tracked, unless he was being physically surveilled, was to get a different vehicle. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And to make it to where it would be harder for them to get a warrant to be able to put a GPS tracker in it, he would need to have it in somebody else's name. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that's true. And it wasn't in his name. You wouldn't be able to get a warrant for that. And whose name was it in? Whose name was it in? Mama's. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. What do you make of the 12 Viagra tablets? It can be used for mountain sickness. Wow. I didn't know that. Damn, that's clever. That is clever. So, and we'll put a video out where you'll be able to see these pictures of what was found in his vehicle, but he had lots of camping gear. He had the money. He had bank cards that were in his name, not in his name. He had pretty much anything that you could need to live off the grid for a while. So disappear. the Viagra was really bothering me because I was thinking why of everything that you have in there, like to me, the Viagra seemed out of place. So if Viagra can be taken for mountain sickness, well, yeah, that's true. That seems pretty planned. Yeah, it's true. And I don't know who runs around with, a go pack and four cell phones and $15,000. I don't know. Part three of the murder and Modesto series covers the hardest part of the case, trying to answer the question of what happened to Lacey and Connor Peterson. In a shocking twist of events, the world watches as Modesto first searches for Lacey and Connor, supporting Scott and his unimaginable loss. This support quickly wanes and then turns against Scott as his secrets begin to shatter his picture-perfect facade. His lies, his secrets, and the lack of emotion make Scott one of the most hated men at the time. Amber Fry gives the detectives motive, but with no crime scene, no murder weapon, and no bodies, Scott is just a suspect. That changes the moment that Lacey and Connor's remains turn up at the same place as Scott's alibi, a few miles downstream of the Berkeley Marina, but it isn't over yet. Now the state must prove that Scott is guilty beyond reasonable doubt, and Scott is steadfast on his innocence. Even with the death penalty on the table, Scott digs in and prepares for a fight with celebrity attorney Mark Gregos on his side. Part 4 of the Murder in Modesto series will analyze the investigation by the Modesto police and the investigators to include media and what role they played in this case. This is a critical part of the series as the world remains divided as to whether or not Scott is an innocent man behind bars or a sophisticated and manipulative narcissist who refuses to admit what he's done. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. 
If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime podcast. Podcast. Bye.